You're listening to coverage of the 2021 Convention of the American Council of the Blind. Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. My name is Sandra Sermons. I am the chair of ACB's International Relations Committee. And on behalf of President Dan Spoon and the rest of our officers and board of directors, I would like to welcome you to our Voices from Around the World. Woohoo! We are live saying hello out there, everybody. Hope you're listening. Hope you're uh, definitely welcome. I'm glad that you are joining us uh, this afternoon. So we really have um, a very long and rich legacy. But this year is special because we are choosing to celebrate 10 years of Voices from Around the World. Um, Previous Prior to the luncheons, we of course had receptions, but we we never had an actual anniversary. So this is it. We have a lot of things on tap and in store for you all. And we really, really, really hope that you enjoy yourself. So before we really get started, um, I'm going to give everyone the opening CEU credit um, code, which is 01630. Again, 01630. I would like to tell you all, um, the members of the committee, because I have a wonderful committee. And I've, as the chair, I've had the privilege and honor of serving. Um, and I've, re- I've really enjoyed it. Um, I've had the pleasure of serving under both Dan and Kim, and it's been a pleasure. So uh, without further ado, our members are as follows. We have Alan Casey of North Carolina, Sue Bowmaster of Virginia, Maria Christich of New York, and a special shout out for her because she just became a life member. Congratulations, Maria. Um, Naomi Sewell of Missouri, Oral Miller of Washington, D.C., Gabriel Lopez Gafardi of Miami, and I feel like I, Meryl Schechter of Maryland. Um, I think I got everybody. I truly hope that I got everybody. (laughs) Um, You did. So what we're going to do now is if we have any visitors from other countries, we're going to ask you to raise your hand and our wonderful host, Katie, will um, unmute you. And just briefly tell us your name and where you're from. I hope this works. Hi, I'm John Ray from Toronto, Canada. It worked just fine, sir. Hey, John. Nice to hear your voice. Previous committee member. (laughs) (laughs) Melissa, where are you from? 
Hello. Uh, I'm from Dubai. Okay. Welcome. Glad to have you. All right. So at this point, we have Canada and Dubai. Um, I suspect that other people definitely um, will be joining us, but we'll go with that for the time being. Um, one of the things that we're also going to be doing is uh, having having door prizes because we are trying to make this very special. So we've done a lot of things that hopefully will make this uh, an even better than usual voices. Um, we are going to first get started uh, with our panel. And I'm going to turn it over to Naomi, who's going to introduce our first member, and then I will introduce the others and we'll start the panel. Okay. Um, welcome, everyone. I hope you're listening on on um, ACB Media as well and on Zoom. And uh, I am going to introduce a good friend of mine. Um, her name is Zizi Miller. And Zizi and I used to work together. And we spent a lot of time commiserating and still do. And Zizi moved to the United States from Jordan. And um, Zizi, uh, would you like Zizi to tell her story now, or would you just like to go on to the next? Okay. So Zizi, okay. So Zizi um, is one of the most American people I know, but she has a great background, really interesting background, and we're happy to have her here. And she also went to Jordan recently to visit her family. So. Thank you, Zizi, for being here. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about you growing up in, Jor in Jordan and then coming over here to the United States. Okay, thank you. And you're right, I am very American now. <laughs> <laughs> and happy to say that, I'm proud of it. But uh, yeah, uh, when I was born over there, it was Jordan. Currently, it's the West Bank and it's occupied by Israel. So. I have family both in the West Bank and I have family in Jordan. Uh, I came to the United States, I think it was 1979. I was a teenager. I had just graduated from high school. Now you all probably can figure out my age, but uh, I graduated from high school and came to this country. Um, I came because uh, the situation over there was uh, 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 intolerable. My mom had two boys, five, two brothers, who were sons of an only son uh, of my grandmother. And we were kind of the, the last two boys of the uh, kind of the family. So my mom wanted to protect them so that they don't join any, let's say, any uh, group that might fight or the country or fight for the land or whatever you want to call it. I, I'm trying to be really hesitant about how to reference it because I don't want to offend anybody or I don't want, but anyway, the point is my mom didn't want my brothers to fight because she didn't want the, la the last of the family to be killed one way or the other. And since my dad is gone also, so to protect them, 
she decided she would come to the United States. She has family here, has been here for decades. Uh, her great, her, her grandfather actually was here about a century ago. So kind of, they were American, but yet uh, Arabs also. So she asked them to sponsor, she asked her brothers to sponsor her and my brothers. I was still in high school when that happened. So she came first with my two brothers. And when I graduated from high school, she came back for me. Um, I was in boarding schools. In our country, boarding schools are very elite. Not because I was rich, but uh, I had the opportunity of uh, having people uh, from other countries uh, you know, pay for my tuition. So I went to boarding schools and to private schools. So my mom, when I graduated from high school, my mom came back and did my paperwork for me so that I can come to the United States. Uh, and uh, I came and went to college, uh, Western Michigan University, because my family settled in Michigan. And I met my husband in, in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and we got married, and I came to, to uh, Missouri in 87 for my job. So uh, that's how it is. If you want to know more about the, what's going on over there, that might take all day, but it's a, it's a troubled world. Uh, and uh, it's a troubled part of the world, actually. And people want peace, others don't. And this continues. Uh, I guess you probably hear all the time about wars over there in Gaza and the West Bank. Uh, and and it, it happens and it, it's dangerous. But we still go back once in a while. I don't go very often. My first time was two years ago, in this November. Uh, I took my husband with me. And my brother and my sister-in-law were going, and they invited us to go with them so that uh, they can show my husband where I was born and where we grew up. And he was very excited to go, so we went. And it was a very nice uh, visit. Like I said, we went both to Jordan, because I have family in Jordan, my sister, and some of her kids there, and my niece, uh, my brother's daughter, actually, uh, got married and uh, went back to Jordan with her husband because he's Jordanian and they want to be uh, to live here. He wanted to live in Jordan because that's where his family is. So she went with him. And then I have uh, my sister's kids and other aunts and uncles in the West Bank where we went and visited there also. And of course, since I was born in the West Bank, my husband wanted to go there so he can see where I was born. We visited Israel. We went to Tel Aviv and to uh, Haifa and uh, the, the Mediterranean Sea, and we had, very, we had a very good time, Jerusalem. So we showed them the, the, that part of the world, and we had fun. Okay, so can we talk about what was it like being blind when you were living in Jordan? Okay, that was one of the reasons. Female as well, um, also factoring in your gender, that would be helpful too. Okay, well, being female, is not okay in Jordan, in the West Bank and in Jordan. It's totally different than other Arabic countries where females are kind of uh, don't have the freedoms that other countries have. Jordan and the West Bank uh, is different. We're a little more westernized, so fem being a female was not a big issue. Being blind, however, was kind of a different story because. Um, not that blind people don't have futures there, but they're not as open or as, as, as many jobs there 
for blind people as they are here. Uh, education, we can we go to college. Uh, if our families can afford, they pay for it. Otherwise, we get uh, scholarships. Uh, we, I have people, I have friends who I grew up with. Well, I went to school with. I didn't grow up with really. I went to school with uh, who also were blind and have jobs as physical therapists. They have jobs as teachers. They have jobs as lawyers. So they have similar jobs to what they have here. But unemployment is high everywhere in that part of the world. So it's not just among blind people. So I can't say it's because they're blind, they can't get jobs. It's because unemployment is high. And the uh, situation is really bad in, in the West Bank. In Georgia, I don't know much about, I don't know too many of, if any, blind people in Jordan, because like I said, I, went, I grew up and went to school in the West Bank. So my friends and the people I knew are from the West Bank. Uh, although I have, I know a couple of uh, girls who got married and moved to Jordan after the war, after the Six Day War in 67. Um, so, but they don't work, they're only housewives. But the girls that I know who have jobs, I know one who's a physical therapist, another one who's a lawyer, another one who's a teacher, uh, another one who's um, occupational therapist. So they get jobs like here. And, and, you know, the only difference I'll say is you don't see females carry canes very often, very, very, very seldom. And the reason is in Jordan or in that part of the world, walking hand in hand or arm in arm is not unusual. Even for sighted people, you would never see or you hardly ever see a female going out somewhere by herself. Not because it's the culture, it's just choice. We're very sociable. And there's, there are, there's always more than one person, whether it's males, females. Now, females and males don't go out together unless they're married or engaged. But just to date or just for friends, they don't. But females and females go out all the time. Males and ma males go out all the time. They, we walk arm in arm, whether we're two females or two males, whether we're sighted, blind, or otherwise. We just, that's how the culture is over there. You don't just, you know, because you're two females, you're not thought, looked upon as being gay if you walk arm in arm, or if you hug and kiss on the cheek when you haven't seen them in a while. It's, it's normal over there. And it's normal to tell a girl, I love you, or to tell a boy to tell another boy, I love you. It's just normal. So as far as that's how that is. Uh, we, uh, I grew up just like anybody else. The only difference is whenever I went out anywhere, I went as side guide with another person, the female. What kind of Braille did you learn? I'm sorry, Braille? Braille. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I learned Braille. Um, I learned Arabic and English, but the British English. I, when I came to this country, I went to college and I was uh, writing papers and I got so many bad errors because I spelled the way British people spell, like labor with an O-U-R, labor with an O-U-R, or program, A-M-M-E, uh, -E, uh, yeah, color, yes. Get schedule, uh, like, yes. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. We, uh, I spoke the British accent and, and uh, I wrote and spelled the British way, because that's the English we learned over there. And the reason why we learned that is because Britain had occupied that part of the world 
uh, back in the early 40s, uh, pre-Israel being created, we were under British rule. And even uh, the, the Jordan became uh, was independent in 1948. I think that's when Israel was created, right, Naomi? Yes. Yeah. So they, they divided that part of the uh, Palestine, what we used to call Palestine, gave the West Bank to Jordan and the rest of it to Israel. And of course, Gaza to Egypt. So, uh, but we were still occupied by Britain until, I don't know, 19, or maybe that was when we got, I don't remember the day, I think 1951 is when Jordan got their independence from Britain. So <laughs> we had British influence. And that's the English we learned, and that's the accent we had, we used. And the school I went to, um, now, it, one thing different in, in the West Bank and in Jordan, they don't have blind schools for all the way through high school. They have them from kindergarten to sixth grade, and then after that you, you go to regular schools. But the reason why they have them to sixth grade is so that kids can learn Braille, learn how to take notes, learn how to function, in a regular school because we don't have the programs that we have here over there. Like we have services for the blind, we don't have that. At least we didn't have to now was growing up. I don't think they have it now either, but uh, I, I didn't, uh, if there are any changes, I didn't hear about them or I don't know anything about them. But when I grew up, we, we went to the blind school from kindergarten to sixth grade. And then after that, I went to a German uh, private school, which was for all, you know, I was the only blind girl in that school, as a matter of fact. And then for my high school, 10th, 11th, and 12th, I went to an American Quaker school called Friends. And they had uh, Friends for Girls and Friends for Boys. So we were separated. But the last couple of years I was there, they integrated both the 10th grade and above because they had the boys' school had the people who were in science majors and the girls' school was a liberal arts major. So we had a few boys who were not science-oriented, and they came to our friend's girls' school, and we had some girls go to the boys' school for the science majors. School in our countries is also different. Um, we have uh, ninth grade is when all ninth graders in the country take a, sit for a final exam, governmental exam, and if they pass the test, they go to 10th grade and they're separated, 10th liberal arts and 10th science. And the people, the ones that go to science, uh, the science school are the ones who excel in math sciences and the ones who excel in social sciences and social studies go to the liberal arts school. So I was in a liberal arts school, so I was in a friend's girl school, but we had but we had uh, about three boys, I think three or four boys in our class because they were liberal arts also, they weren't, didn't do well in science, so they came to our school. So other than that, the first time I really went to school with boys was college. And so what made you want to go into the area of, I'll say, the blindness field? Because you went to Western Michigan, which is an excellent school. Yes. Um, when I first went to college, I wanted to be... A lawyer and the counselor that i had in michigan uh kind of well they gave me a, a psych test you know before i went to this uh, the center uh and i had to go to the center before i went to western michigan that was the rehab agency michigan's uh thing that i had to go to learn american ways and when i'm uh, 
skills because I didn't have them with the cane and all that. And they give you, I don't know if they do that in Missouri, but there they give you a psych test, you know, competency test and psych test to see if you're picking the right major, I guess. But at least back then in the 80s, that's what they did. And I wasn't discouraged from being a lawyer because they said I was, my culture made me not open-minded. <laughs> I'm laughing. I know, right? right? <laughs> yeah, you... What? <laughs> right. Well, back then, I guess, they, from the answers I gave, I guess I was not very open-minded and liberal enough to be <laughs> a lawyer. <laughs> then I decided, okay, what about social work? And I said, well, social workers need to understand people's different cultures and blah, blah, blah. And I mean, yeah, I might have been very conservative as far as, as far as, behavior, not necessarily politics or anything, but I don't know. Anyway, but I defied, uh, I had one of my other uh, instructors at the center told me, do whatever you want, don't listen to that. <laughs> so I went to the social worker, actually. <laughs> uh, I got my, my bachelor's degree in social work with emphasis in criminal justice. And then I could not go in, uh, I was put on hold for the council, for the sorry, master's degree in social work because they were taking very high grades only, like 3.8 and above. Mine was 3.3 because I played a lot and had fun a lot in school. So I didn't, play, didn't do a lot of uh, good work, I guess. My grade point average was 3.3. So I had to wait for an opening. I didn't want to wait, so I went to counseling. And that's how I came into the blindness field with a counseling degree. And then was your first job here in Missouri? It was. It was. I graduated in... 84, I believe, uh, after I had uh, my first son, I was uh, pregnant with my second son when I graduated, and uh, I could, couldn't get a job in Michigan. It was a time when unemployment was really high, if you remember back in the early to mid-80s, and I was hoping that I would, uh, well, I worked for one year as a alcohol and drug abuse special, uh, uh, specialist. I mean, I, I worked with drug and alcohol and drug abusers, and I didn't like it because they always came back. They never were rehabilitated. So they always came back. It was very depressing. I couldn't do that anymore. So uh, and then I couldn't find a job. So when the job in Missouri came open, our job development specialist came to me and told me there's a job in Missouri where you'd be willing to move. Unfortunately, my husband was willing to move with me, so we moved. And my first job, my job here started in 87 in Missouri. And you were a rehabilitation teacher, and I met you in the mid-90s. Correct. And then you became director of Older Blind Services for the state of Missouri. Correct, in 97. Yes. yes. And we talked all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we do. Yes. Well, anyone have any questions for Zizi? Zizi, tell them your real name. Okay, well, right now it is Zizi, according to yes. when I changed when I got my citizenship, but my uh, real name is Zarifa Sukkar. And right. it was too long and too complicated, so I just went to Zizi because that's what my family called me all the time okay. back home. So, Zizi is a good name. I, I definitely, I'm not sure that I could pronounce your actual name on the dare, but I absolutely can say ZZ. Uh, yes, absolutely. And I prefer ZZ anyway. So, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, that's 
I grew up with that name and that's what I have now. Before we take questions, I'm going to give everyone the opening CEU credit um, code, which is 01630. Again, 01630. Okay, does anybody have questions for Zizi? Aloha. <clears throat> Aloha, this is Deb from Hawaii. Thank you very much for this. And I wish we had more people on from the many different quarters of our world. Um, my only comment is that we're all human beings on this one planet. And I think we just all want the same thing, just to be, you know, happy and be free and be taken care of and be loved. So thank you very, very much. I really well, appreciate it. Thank you for coming and thank you for your comment. Um, yeah, I if could, we left it up to people, get rid of the government and just let, leave the people. Okay. <laughs> Do we have any other questions? Thank you. Thank you, Deborah. Hi, everyone. Hey, Gabriel. Hey, Gabe. <laughs> hi. Hi. Hi, Zuzi. Hi. Or I should say, Marhaba. Kifinti. Alhamdulillah. <laughs> 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 um, I am um, my uh, originally I'm from Honduras, um, but um, on my mother's side, uh, Kafati, my family is from Palestine. Uh, my grandparents were born in Bajalla. Okay. Um, so I have a question for you. I don't know if this was your same experience. Um, did you find the uh, the environment within um, an Arab family uh, not so uh, welcoming with uh, blindness and uh, or visual impairment, um, seeing it as something that uh, was almost shameful and uh, needed to be hidden from 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 the world or from uh, society. Okay, um, I'm not going to say that it's not, it does not happen in Palestine, but in my family, it did not happen. My family is the opposite. They're always uh, uh, sh wanting me to meet all their friends and all their uh, families and all everybody because they're so, they're, they're so proud of me. But I have seen it happen in Palestine where there are some families who are ashamed of their blind. Uh, one's children and do want to hide them. As a matter of fact, our school that I went to, we, whenever we heard of somebody like that, they would go visit that person at the uh, family's home to try to talk them into letting that child come to school so that they are out and, and in the world. But we weren't always successful, but they did do that. And so it does happen, yes, but it did not happen, fortunately for me, in my family. Thank you. Thank you for answering my question. Mm -hmm. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Alaikum. I had a question, but uh, that was before. No, go, she... ahead, Anthony. go ahead, Anthony. What's your question? <laughs> well, it's funny. Gabe and I have similar questions and we're not even in the same location at the moment. I was wondering if you um, I'm so glad that was your experience with your family. Um, I was wondering if you could take a, a more, um, you know, uh, broader view and talk to us a little bit about the the attitudes towards you know women versus men um disability you know are 
persons with a disability uh, who are men treated differently than women. Um, and in general, disability are not the, the attitudes uh, of men and women in, in your home country and um, how they may be different uh, with some of the other countries surrounding Jordan. Okay. Um, like I said, our country is a little more liberal. Uh, Jordan, the West Bank, just a little more liberal than, uh, not as liberal as Lebanon, but more liberal than uh, Saudi Arabia or uh, Syria or one of those other countries. Um, I think Dubai is a little more liberal also. But but anyway, um, yeah, males and females were treated a little differently, even though we're f fairly westernized, they were treated a little differently. For example, a man can go out uh, and be out all night and, and no problem. A female had, had to have curfew, you know, she had to be, especially if she was not married, she had to be home by a certain time because her parents say that they, she has to be. A woman, if she's not married, normally lived with her family until she was married. Uh, a, a woman can't go out on a date. A male, if if that fam woman's family or, or okay, you can't tell if a man has been with a girl. However, you can tell if a girl has been with a man. So for a Muslim woman, now I was born Muslim. I don't practice any religion. I'm, as I told Naomi, I hate organized religion, so I don't practice. But I was born Muslim. And my family believes that a girl has to remain a virgin until she gets married. A man, on the other hand, if he's not, who's going to know it, right? So, <coughs> so the treatment there is, to, is different. And, and a man is, a, I always call them hypocrites because, you know, if they marry the girl and she's not a virgin, he has the right to, to, to annul the wedding right away. Uh, a woman never knows that. So in that fashion, they're, they're treated differently in, the, in, the, in the, uh, you know, that social part of life. They're treated differently. As far as education, they're not. As far as employment, they're not. As far as now, I'm talking about where I'm from. In in Saudi Arabia, for example, women did, used to be able to drive. Now, from what I understand, recently they they are able to drive now. But before that, for, for a long time, you wouldn't see a woman from Saudi Arabia drive. Um, so it, it it just it just depends. Or Afghanistan, the women there aren't even allowed to go to school. If you remember that story about that little girl who was shot because she was in school. So we, we are like other countries in certain ways, very few ways, but for the most part, we're more westernized. Now, Christians and Muslims are treated, treat their kids the same, girls the same way, by the way. And it's not because of religion. Uh, as a matter of fact, I know of, uh, or I had a friend in high school whose sister had been shot by her dad and she was Christian had been shot by her dad because she was pregnant before she got married. She got pregnant before she got married. And uh, I, I remember her mourning her, her sister because, you know, she thought was overdone. But of course, you know, but anyway. Okay. Um, Melissa, um, you are from Dubai. And the really cool thing about Melissa is She's a high school student. So um, if you could just tell us uh, what it is like for you 
um, as a woman who was blind growing up in a Muslim country um, and being being a teenager. You know, what what how has growing up been for you um, as far as your blindness or um, what sorts of opportunities, education, uh, things of that nature? All right. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me on this panel. And so my family, they're originally from India, so there isn't a lot of like shame or disappointment about the fact I was born blind. They're not ashamed or disappointed about that. However, they do worry about my future and they do pity me like like my extended family, especially, they're like, oh, she's blind. What in the world is she going to do in her future, you know? So growing up, I didn't face any, like, disappointment or shame for being blind, but I was very limited in my opportunities because um, the United Arab Emirates, like, that's where Dubai is, it, it generally doesn't have a lot of opportunities for um people who are blind, uh, educational or employment opportunities or otherwise. But I will say my first uh, few years of education were pretty good because I was sent to, uh, they called it a training center, but they also called it a school. So I think I I just call it a school because my experience is kind of like school, like I had classes and everything. So my first years of education, uh, like from kindergarten to grade two, I was at the school where I was taught Braille in both English and Arabic. And I also was involved in a lot of sports and other recreational activities. But that was only for about a few years. By the time I graduated grade two, for some reason, that school closed down. I have no idea why, but they just closed that school down and they said, okay, uh, just send her me, like, you know, just, just send your daughter to another, like, a regular school and she'll be completely fine. And that's what my, what my parents believed as well. It was like, I wouldn't have any issues adjusting to a regular school, but that wasn't actually what happened. Like, I, um, I went to a lot of regular schools, actually, and a majority of my life I also spent at home not really doing anything just you know just watching tv or just kind of passing the time as best I could so the problem was we don't have and we still we didn't have at the time like in the early 2000 like late like mid to late 2000s and we still don't have the equipment that a blind student needs like they didn't even have braille or anything so I literally just sat in those classes trying to listen as best I could. And I didn't really get to socialize at all because like, if you looked at me, you would automatically know I'm blind. Cause like my eyes, I can't keep them up. Like, like they're closed. So you take one look at me and you'll know I'm blind. So because of that, a lot of kids wouldn't talk to me because for some reason they're scared of me. Like they just got freaked out by the fact that, my eyes were closed and like the, uh, the other adults that didn't even know like how to interact with me. So I would just pretty much be in class kind of listening and just kind of, to be honest, I was kind of bored, <laughs> but so that's why I just spent one year and like whatever school I was in, I just spent a year and then I just had, Oh, like I just 
couldn't deal with all that loneliness and all that ignorance anymore. So I spent a little while at home as well. So um, that time early years passed, just going from one school to another, not having a great experience and um, yeah, just spending time at home basically. And the way I did my homework and example, basically my mom did it for me. Like she tried asking questions and she tried explaining stuff, but she and my dad, they work, they used to work and like they still work long hours. So by the time they got home, they were really tired. So they just found it easier to do my homework for me. And exams were pretty much the same as well. Like they they did ask me questions and they did write my answers down, but I guess they elaborated or I'm not quite sure what they did, but either way, I always passed the grade and I always got like the highest grade in every class. Um, I wasn't involved in any science experiments. I wasn't involved in a lot of physical activity because they were afraid I'd get hurt or they didn't really give me an opportunity to even participate. So yeah, when I say I literally just sat in class, like on a chair, on like on a table, that's, that's literally what I did. Yeah. That's, that was what it's like. Um, Sandra, can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. I'm so sorry. I couldn't get unmuted. And I'm sorry, Melissa. Um, I, I just wanted to say first, before, if I if I can ask the other questions I had prepared, um, that I had heard Melissa on an interview with Cindy Hollis, and the name of the program is called uh, ACB in Action. And she interviewed five international women. When I heard Melissa, I said, oh, my God, we got to get this woman on the International Relations Committee program. And I told everybody on the committee, and I bragged about her. <laughs> and then I asked Cindy for her email address. We've been corresponding and, and all that. She's a, a great role model. But, she, you know, you've done a lot in your life, Melissa. Now, um, I wanted to ask you, what adaptive equipment? do you um use um so i didn't get any adaptive equipment until i was about 12. um at that point i was in an indian school like just like with an indian curriculum and mm -hmm. there was a teacher there that told my parents about the screen reader <sighs> called jaws and they said if you you know if you could purchase a laptop we could install that screen reader in it and maybe she could be connected with the world beyond, or she could just do more in her life rather than just sitting in class and not really learning anything. So um, that's when my dad got me a computer, and uh, that's when I learned about JAWS. And I was, I was kind of hesitant to try it at first because I didn't know anything about it, and there wasn't anyone that could teach me. So I had to teach myself how to use JAWS. So at first it was really halting. Like I just barely used it. But but when I started using it more, um, it was actually pretty fun and, and really easy to use. And I somehow just taught myself how to navigate the web and like talk to people and, you know, all these other, um, all the things that, that you do on the internet. So I guess you can say I'm kind of easy. Like I'm, I don't really have issues figuring stuff out because I had to do it all my life. And in 2017, oh wait, sorry, in 2018, I got introduced to the iPhone because 
there was this program, um, it was like the seminar, I guess you can say, I wouldn't call it a convention, but it was like a seminar where, um, this person told us, oh, you could teach her how to use an iPhone. And we met this other person there who used an iPhone and he said he'd be willing to teach me. So that took me about three lessons to learn. Like it was about, uh, cause it was, I found it a little more difficult to figure out how to use an iPhone on my own because it's literally just like a touch screen and there weren't any buttons suppressed. So I found it a little more intimidating, but um, I learned how to use an iPhone as well by um, this, I call, he's like a friend of mine now, but uh, but when I met him, I, he just helped me how to use an iPhone. So I learned how to use an iPhone, but I still prefer to be on my laptop whenever possible. However, I don't mind using my phone when I have to. And I do have, I do use it like on a semi-regular basis. Uh, I totally agree. Um, also, Tell them the fascinating story of how you learned English, if you had no idea. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I didn't actually know a lot of English because, like I said, um, I didn't really socialize with anyone, and no one really socialized with me. And, like, my family, they spoke Hindi at home, so that's what I know. Oh, that's what I knew at the time. So um, when I first got my computer when I first started to learn how to use JAWS and all that, um, at the time I didn't really have anyone, like I was at home because I just left that Indian school. So it was just me and the maid at home. I had a maid that would just look after, like if I needed something or anything. So my sister was at school and my parents were at work. So I didn't really have anyone to talk to at the time. So um, I just Googled like short stories for kids or just little stories that I could, easily read and understand because ever since I can remember, like I was a very little kid, I had a fascination with fairy tales and stories. And there is honestly no shortage of them on the internet. You can just find loads and loads of short stories or fairy tales to read. So, and, and my screen reader, Jaws, like the eloquence, like it, it has an American accent. So I just spent all day, every day, with jaws listening to, to the stories or listening to like other articles like you know just having jaws read all these articles to me and that's how i just learned all these new words in english and i just learned I, and I kind of got this accent which i didn't even know i was developing until people started putting out hey why do you sound like an american all of a sudden <laughs> so um but yeah i basically spent a lot of time with jaws like more than i did with my own family i was just on it like on my computer like constantly like, real constantly and i also when i discovered social forums and the way i could talk to and connect with different people i also got chances to improve my english even more that way as well so that oh, was mainly mm, yeah great um i you just recently graduated high school congratulations yeah. and uh what are your plans after high school so uh like i said i didn't really have a great um you know education so i'm planning to do something that makes me happy i'm not quite sure what i want to do but since, like, as a result of sitting at a desk all day, every day, I want to do something where I get to, like, move around a lot or 
maybe socialize with a lot of people or just constantly move around, you know? So I was kind of thinking, or like, I also want to do things I never got to do. So like one of them, I was also thinking to be like, to work in a lab, to be like a chemist or to dissect things. So I'm really interested in that. Or I could also be, I could also work in the entertainment industry. That was also something I'm considering. I could work in a record studio. I could work with sound equipment. Just, I don't want to limit myself, you know? I want to just do something that, I'm not basically, I'm not featuring my blindness in here, you know? I don't want to limit myself because of my blindness. Because a lot of people are like, like, a lot of people around me, like my family, they're like, oh, you should, you know, a receptionist job would be good for you all you'd have to do is just sit at a desk and type (laughs) or answer telephone calls i'm like no that's not what i want to do i want to i just want to do something that i enjoy something i'll have fun with all day and something where i don't have to do the same thing so it's ever-changing you know every day so that's what yeah that's i haven't decided what it is though just Mm -hmm. yet i'm still looking (laughs) that's wonderful also um i know we have the pandemic now but before the pandemic did you like to travel like with your family or whatever go play yeah um so my mom works in uh, the emirates airlines so we get a lot of discounted tickets to travel places Mm -hmm. so before the pandemic we used to travel a lot like um me and my family we just used to travel to a lot of places i think we've been to um most of europe mm. um and like at least about five to ten asian countries and went to the u.s as well a couple times so yeah you could say we travel quite a bit oh that's wonderful um what special foods do they have in the united arab emirates that you would tell us about from like going from a um, appetizer to a main course to a beverage to a dessert, a meal, like. All right, so um, let's start with appetizers. Mm-hmm. You'd usually get kebabs for appetizers. Okay. So um, they're basically like just uh, slabs of meat with mm-hmm. like garnered with a lot of spices and all that. I personally don't really like them because the flavor is way too strong for me. Uh-huh. So I personally mm-hmm. don't like them, but a lot of people like kebabs. Oh, yeah. They, they mm-hmm. eat a lot. Mm-hmm. And besides kebab, oh, oh, when they eat kebabs, sometimes they like to dip it in a sauce called hummus. Now, I'm not oh, actually hummus. sure yeah. what hummus <laughs> is made of exactly. Well, but it's made I out of chickpea- chickpeas. Oh, it is? Oh, yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I actually tried hummus. It's, it's not as, it's actually pretty good. I actually like mm-hmm. hummus. Oh, yeah. It's so, mm-hmm. <laughs> so there are, a lot, there are a lot of types of kebabs you can have. Like there is, uh, we call them shish kebab. Well, mm-hmm. no, sheik kebab, not shish kebab, sorry. Uh, there's sheik kebab. There is some other type of kebab. Like I can't exactly recall, but they're okay. definitely a lot of types of kebabs um for your main course Mm -hmm. it depends on what where you are like which restaurant you're at but or what you want to have but if you're in an arab restaurant um i usually ordered rice because i don't really like 
uh, like the breads they offered. So I usually have rice with chicken. Okay. So if we're in an Arab restaurant, it's not really that spicy. Like there isn't a lot of flavor, but mm -hmm. it's still really good. I, I love it. Aww. And I also have something called haris. Um, it's like it's like stew basically. Um, it's like a stew with you can either have chicken or or <laughs> lamb in it, but it's really really good. Like it's it's really spicy, and there are some onions and some other vegetables in it, and it's also pretty hot. So like you feel really filled up and refreshed after you've had haris. Great. And um, for dessert, um, I I usually like these two things called gamet. Gamet is where you mix up a few ingredients like flour, sugar, salt, and yeast, and like a couple other ingredients, and you just make like little balls of dough out of out of that out of those ingredients, and like you fry them. Mm -hmm. Like you, oh. like you don't fry them. Like I would say, kind of like you cook them in a way. Just kind of gently let them cook, mm -hmm. and then once they're done, you can put honey on them. Just like those little round balls of deliciousness. They're they're just so 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 good. Mm, that does sound delicious. <laughs> does anybody in the audience have any questions for Melissa? We do. I have a couple of um, questions. Um, first of all, um, are dog guides pro prohibited uh, by the Islam, um, or are guide dogs permitted, um, their use permitted in the Islamic uh, religion? No. Okay. I've heard, I've heard um, from, I think, like it was quite recently, a few weeks ago, that if you use them, like if you need, their services or if they're assistant dogs and they are permitted but for the most part i don't yeah i'm pretty sure they're not permitted because they're like so in the islamic religion they're considered impure and especially their saliva is considered impure so like if their saliva touches you you have to take a shower and especially you can't get those dogs you can't bring them into your house because that's just that is very like they just consider it completely prohibited. Like you, you just can't do that. So even if you have dogs, you better keep them outside, like in a kennel or something. Because if their saliva touches, like the floor of your house at any point, then you have to like deep clean it, or it is just considered really impure for reasons I don't okay. quite understand. To be honest. Okay. And, and my uh, my my next question is: Are um, are May a a woman, may a, a person. Let's suppose I'm crossing the street with a a, a woman who's a Sunni Muslim. Uh, may I hold? Is it permitted for me to hold that person's arm? Because I had a situation one time where I met a, a, a Sunni Muslim woman. She offered to help me cross the street, but she said I couldn't hold her arm. Oh, that's well. I don't. I can't speak for everyone out there, but I personally don't mind it. If if you like hold my hand or when it comes to crossing the road, but I do understand like some, uh, some people like particularly who haven't heard of other cultures where this is permitted. Like, yeah, I, I would say they will hesitate. So it's, but I think it would be just better if you told them like, it's just for your safety and you can just touch them as little as possible. 
That's, right. that's it, the advice I can give. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah, this, can this you is hear a woman me now? in this country. Yes, Susie, go ahead. Sorry yes, about that. I would like to answer both of Michael's questions. Go uh, for it. Okay, first of all, a dog. If the family is okay with it, because we have Muslims here in this country who have dogs and, and, and they love them just as much as Americans do. So if it, it's the, the, the Quran, yes, says that dogs are unpure and unclean, but some families you know, do it, have dogs anyway. Uh, I have not seen any in the West Bank or in Jordan with dogs like that. But in this country, people uh, Muslims have adapted. Now, as far as a man touching a woman's uh, uh, sin, it's not just Sunni. It's all Islam. There's Sunni, there's Kurds, there's uh, Shiites. They're all the same because they all follow the same uh, uh, book, which is the Quran. So uh, a male and a female aren't allowed to walk with each other. But I believe in the... In, in, in in a side uh, when side guide is needed, I've been side guided by a lot of Arabic males with no problems. Now there are those who are very 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 religious, who may not accept that. But that's you know that's not a culture. This is more kind of like depends on how religious the person you're walking with or talking to is. Yeah, exactly. So, but okay. I but I've walked with a lot of Arabic males as a side guide, and they had no problems with that, that, and I didn't have any problems neither with my family. Okay. Um, Melissa, first of all, like, your story is amazing, and I just, like, your persistence and determination and, and problem-solving and such, and that's gonna, I think, help you go um, far, so definitely, I'm, I'm impressed, and I was um, just wondering, so I, I feel like I have a little hole in my understanding. You'd mentioned about the, the school not providing well, and that you had, you know, sat at the desk, and your parents had helped you, and then you mentioned um, transitioning to this uh, Indian curriculum school where the teacher introduced you to, to JAWS, and so did you, and then you mentioned leaving that school. So did you go back to the school that wasn't, you know, accommodating well for you? Did you? When um, you yeah, go ahead. Uh, so, um, so that school, the Indian school I was talking about, they weren't providing either, but they just introduced me to JAWS. But I was still, um, I was not really doing a lot in there. I was. Again, I was just in a class, um, just at a desk, not really doing much while the other kids learned and gained knowledge. But um, yeah, that was a, that was the school they uh, taught me, like where they introduced me to jobs. And I left that school because, again, I just wasn't learning anything. I was just really stressed out, and I just wanted out of there. Yeah. Um. I didn't go back. After that, I went to an international baccalaureate, like an IB school. And it was a little different there because one, like, because I stayed like a few years at home. And then by the time I went to that um, IB school, I had a little more like a, at a firmer grasp of, of JAWS and the screener and that school. Most of it was Sounds like research and yeah. writing essays and all that. So, I was able to submit my assignments and my homework were there, but I still didn't socialize. Like I wasn't allowed, like I wasn't given opportunity to socialize and I wasn't involved in any uh, physical activity either, either. So it was pretty much like the other schools. They just sat and listened. And if there were any homework, then you just, I just did it when I um, either at home or at school when I had the time. 
Thank you, Maria. You guys, I have found Gabriel, and I have to tell yeah. you that Zoom is jumping faster than a bouncing ball. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Go ahead, Gabe, please. That's okay. We can, is we can walk through it. Thanks, Katie. Um, so, um, the... Um, Gosh, growing up in in um, in an environment, I, I have to start by saying I'm I'm going to start with the positives. Um, I was very blessed with uh, the parents that I grew up with and that I have. Um, um, my parents have always been very very supportive of me, and um, unfortunately, when I was diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa at the age of nine, they didn't know what to do with it. Um, and they thought they were doing the best. They were making the best decisions. And um, doctors, eye doctors uh, here at Bascom Palmer in, in Miami during, you know, we had a yearly visit, uh, were very optimistic that I was not going to go blind and that my type of retinitis pigmentosa was, was a very slow progressing. And it so happened that it was like that uh, during most of uh, my teenagers and uh, growing up, uh, going to elementary school. Um, I was also fortunate to be uh, in, in a private school with, uh, you know, an, an American school, basically. But even at school, I was always confused. I knew that um, there was something different about me and about the things that I could see or could not see. But there was there was something weird that I never understood. And, and I just, I was ashamed to ask or I was ashamed to say I cannot see that. Um, so I just ended up assuming that everyone had different uh, uh, different types of, of vision and that probably, you know, some other people were like me. But it was never fully, fully explained to me, you are visually impaired. This is normal. Um, there are things that we could do. Uh, no one knew uh, what to do. So like I said, my parents decided to conceal it as much as possible. Hence my question to our uh, first panelist, Zizi, because it came from uh, mostly from the Arab side of my family. I remember the first day when I was wearing glasses because uh, I was... Uh, uh, erroneously diagnosed with uh, myopia uh, in Honduras. Um, and I remember my grandfather on my mother's side, my grandfather who was Arabic, um, very upset with me wearing glasses and saying that um, I should take those off because there's no blind people in his family. And uh, that was not even me being blind. That was just me wearing glasses. Go figure if you would have lived to see me lose my sight. Um, but anyway, we moved, we, I managed, you know, managed to go through elementary and through high school, even though, um, as my vision loss progressed, uh, and, you know, it was, it was in direct and, you know, in direct proportion, or I'm sorry, should I say reverse proportion of my vision loss going downhill and the you know amount of stuff that I needed to read as I went higher in school um, more stuff to read and more um, more material more books and I started just kind of developing my own um, study uh, techniques and I started uh, 
using a lot of uh, uh, study groups with uh, classmates and friends who were who were um, trying to who were trying to um, just help me in you know in the ways they could, and then professors, my teachers would also try to help me. Um, by reading the exams for me, and and it was it was it was all very confusing to say the least, because I I myself didn't know how to advocate for myself, and I myself didn't know it was like a hit or miss. You know, I kind of told them what I needed, and and then they tried to accommodate as much as possible. Some of them did, some of them didn't. Some of them understood, some of them didn't understand. Um, so it was it was very. Uh, nerve-wracking and 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 going into an exam without knowing uh, if am i going to be able to read it uh, am i going to have extra time to finish if i'm going slower me all those things that i had no clue existed um as we know here in the united states as special accommodations but i managed and um went through high school and then went into law school and uh i know i've uh, talked about uh my my tenure in law school in Honduras, uh, again, my parents uh, heroically came through, no special accommodations. So um, my parents, uh, with all the love and dedication, um, recorded all my books and all my codes and everything that I had to study. And uh, at that point, I was uh, still with a, a reasonable amount of vision so I could read exams. Uh, to do them on my own, and if I couldn't, I would get the assistance from from the attorneys who were my professors, and having them read the exam for me, and I would, you know, write the answers. So again, managed to go through law school and um, was able to graduate and practice law in Honduras. And um, the uh, system. Um, allowed me to to be able to to navigate without any accommodations up to that point. However, when um, the time came that uh, my uh, retinitis pigmentosa went really, really bad and I lost a lot of sight, that's when everything changed for me. And it was a rude awakening because up to that point, it had been able to kind of just not face reality and people would ask questions and you know it was like oh he has very severe myopia and so it was like no one talks about it and uh, no one says anything about it um i have to say that at the same time i was also dealing um this was my mid-20s i was also dealing with um identity issues and discovery um you know uh, finding my my place in this world, um, discovering my sexual orientation. And I had a partner who, you know, was not a healthy relationship uh, in any way um, uh, because, you know, he would also protect me from from having to use a cane or from having to um, use any accommodations uh, as, as a, someone who was losing his sight. So it took a lot of courage, but um, I had uh, gotten acquainted with uh, uh, one of the biggest institutes for the blind in Honduras. I became part of their board of directors and uh, legal advisor. And um, to the day, I maintain uh, a lot of friendships and contacts with them. And I also um, 
um, assist them whenever I can. And through them, I started in inquiring about a, a rehab center uh, here in the United States. And that's when I found the Lighthouse. And I took the decision, um, made the decision to come for a rehab program. And then um, I started, it was like, you know, I became a kid again when I knew I started to 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 see everything that was available. Uh, Josh, screen readers. Uh, this at the time, you know, screen readers for for mobile devices were just coming out, and um, and you know, uh, everything was was like I was a kid in a candy store when I started using a computer again and being independent and learning how to arrange my things around the house and the kitchen and uh, being able to walk independently without holding someone's arm, even though I did not like the white cane at the beginning, precisely because of how um, it had been instilled in me that it was, you know, it, it was shameful to be blind or it was shameful for others to see me as blind. So having the white cane, obviously, there was no hiding it. A white cane automatically <laughs> puts you a, a label according to what I had grown up uh, understanding. So it was a very, very difficult adjustment, um, not only for myself, but for my family, my parents and my extended family to see me with a white cane. I would always get uh, from people um, oh, you put it away. You don't need it. Hold on to me. And at the beginning, I gave in to that. But then I started uh, standing up for my for myself and 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 asking them to please be respectful um, of me having to use the cane and and to that was not the best way to help me because they were not only not helping me because I was not always going to be around people sighted guides, uh, but also it was reinforcing that feeling of having to hide my blindness. And, and I was trying to come to terms with so many things, my blindness, my sexual orientation. So um, in, in the process, I uh, decided to stay here in the US because I tried to go back to Honduras and continue my law practice, but it was impossible to transfer the skills and the knowledge that I had acquired here um, over there in a setting that was not welcoming. The environment was not welcoming. There was too much corruption in the legal system. And it was not safe for me to even, you know, try to use a cane, a white cane. It's not safe for a sighted person to walk in some places in Latin America, but that's a different story. Um, and um, finally was able to secure a contract with a company that sponsored my my work visa and eventually became a resident and went back to school here to um, Miami-Dade College for a couple of semesters and then went into Barry for a master's in business administration. And uh, this is where um, I want to emphasize the differences in, in, in the systems because having the special accommodations that we have here in this country um, and having the ADA in Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act makes a huge difference in leveling the playing field for those of us who are blind and visually impaired, especially in um, higher education. I was amazed when I started 
understanding that I had the ability to bring my laptop with JAWS uh, to my lectures, that I had extended time for testing, um, that I um, was able to record lectures and get accessible uh, PowerPoints or material from from uh, faculty. And um, it was it was amazing. And I really want to to underline that because having special accommodations is, is something that can definitely or I'm sorry, I should say having the right accommodations uh, can certainly make the difference in the outcome and us being successful in higher education. And uh, I can only imagine um, how how it can also make the difference for a kid growing up through elementary and high school with a visual impairment, because I lived it and I had, you know, no special accommodations. And like I said, it was nerve wracking and I could have never done um, and accomplished uh, my my degree and going into the workforce without the uh, special accommodations. Um, I graduated uh, with my MBA. At that point, I was already acquainted with my uh, local chapter of the Florida Council of the Blind and had started also um, conversations with the folks from uh, BPI, which is uh, the affiliate that I now preside, Blind LGBT Pride International. And um, the point that I really, really want to leave everyone with is that ACB and uh, its affiliates, both FCB and BPI, gave me the tools that I needed. Um, because one thing is to have the resources as far as technology, screen readers, uh, white cane, a guide dog. Um, and another total different thing is to be able to be proud of your identity, of who you are as a whole. Um, and that's what I gained through ACB and FCB and BPI was the ability to use all the resources that I had uh, acquired, all the tools that I had acquired through higher education, through special accommodations, um, through laws that protect me, not only as a blind person, but also as uh, part of the LGBT community. So the... the uh, the, the difference that having the system and an organization that can back you up, that can offer you a home, uh, makes a difference. It's, it's really impactful. It, um, it puts your mind and your heart in a better place where you can really focus on studying and getting a job and succeeding in life. And then um, I have to share one of... Yes. <laughs> am, am I going overtime? Yes. Oh, okay. I just, I'm, I just, I'm just going to close. I didn't know how much you wanted me to talk. So I'm just, I just want to close with the last portion of what I wanted to cover is um, my dream was not complete until January of 2015 when I became a naturalized citizen of this great country. And uh, following that February, when I was able to attend my first legislative seminar and advocate um, in Capitol Hill. So um, 
just to close, <laughs> I know I, I can talk a lot. Just to close, be proud uh, for those of us who are here and be grateful. And for those of uh, you who are joining us from um, other countries, uh, anything we can do to help you uh, break, uh, reach that gap and advocate for your rights, we're here for you. Thank you, Gabe. Thanks. Yes, we are very fortunate to live um, in the United States to, you know, um, the land of the free and the home of the brave, you know? Um, so with that, um, we are going to, that concludes our, well, part one. Um, you all are accustomed to us having international guests. Um, but now we're going to have a different flavor. We're going to um, switch gears to another flavor. Um, and we're going to celebrate who we are. Um, voices from around the world. Where it came from, where it began, who it started with. So we have... Uh, a couple of very special guests. Um, so before me, um, I am not the first chair of Voices from Around the World. The first chair was Pam Shaw, and you will be hearing from her. But besides her, we have some other committee members, some of whom are still with us, and some of them um, who have passed away. And so what we're doing is we are standing and building upon the legacy that they left for us. And today is going to be a celebration of that legacy. Um, before we do that, um, we do have a series of door prizes. So what is the way we're going to work it is I'm going to ask the question and um, you can raise your hand and the first person that answers it um, will receive the prize. Okay. My first question is, is there anybody out there who has attended at least 10 voices from around the world? Either the, um, the, receptions or the luncheons, a combination thereof. Is there anybody who, besides me, um, who has attended at least 10 of them? Katie, do you see any hands? No hands. Okay. Um, nine? No hands. Eight? Wait, Cotty, you do have some hands. Yes, Sandra, this is Alan. Hi, Alan. Welcome. Committee member, Alan. Alan Casey, now, how many have you attended? Yeah, I, think, I think I've attended at least nine. I actually think there have been more than that, Alan, but we'll we'll go with nine. Has anybody been, has anyone else attended nine or ten? Hello? Hello? This is Roger Peterson. Roger! How many have you attended? I have no idea. <laughs> I remember that. I, I yield to Roger. Okay, okay. Because I did more than I have. <laughs> we didn't have voices around the world when I was first around here. 
we just had we just had uh, you know international guests, and we did our best to entertain them. Right, but you were the one who named it Voices. Remember, we kept it, and we kept the name from then on. Yeah. Okay, so, Roger, you have won um, a $10. You have won $10. And actually, you have a choice. You can either, it's $10 cash or a $10 Amazon gift card. Which would you prefer? I'll take the cash. <laughs> of course you will. All right. Okay. Okay. Um, so what we are going to do now is that was our first door prize. Now we're going to have a conversation about our um, previous chair and our our previous members. Um Pam Shaw, if you are on the call, can you please unmute? I don't think she's here. She, I don't see her number. Yeah, she okay. she did. Okay. I did send her the link, but uh, for to get the phone number, but I'm not sure she's here. I don't see her. Okay. Okay. Um, so, as I've said before, um, we have quite a few. Unfortunately, we have quite a few members. Um, who have passed away, and they have created a huge legacy, and we have huge shoes to fill. Um, so what we're going to go ahead and do is the first person we're going to hear from, Deb, do you have the recording for Denise? I do. That's why I'm back here. Yep. Okay. You want that now? Yes, please. All right. Thanks. Thank you, everyone, for joining us to remember a, a dear friend and a colleague, um, Denise Decker. I'm sure for all of you, as well as for myself, it was quite a surprise on uh, November 4th to learn of her passing because many of us served on the audio description committee, um, performing arts, uh, museums, and parks, which Denise was the chair of. And we had just had a committee meeting about 10 days before her passing. And as usual, Denise was working hard and writing down tasks and assignments and to-dos and things to be accomplished because she never let a moment go by where there wasn't something that she wanted to do to make the world a better place. She really was dedicated and devoted in so many ways to making the world better for people with disabilities, especially people who are blind and visually impaired. She also had a very fond spot in her heart for people from other countries. Um, she loved um, people from other places. She loved travel and learning about new cultures. And so she was very active in an organization in the DC area called Partners Independence. And um, they were just as surprised and saddened of her passing as well. Denise is truly going to be missed by all of her friends in the American Council of the Blind and in the audio description project. She was amazingly articulate, as was evidenced by the um, 
the great interview that she did on National Public Radio just back in August with Joel Snyder. And she really represented us well and represented audio description and how important audio description is for all of us. So she never let us down on anything she ever did. And she could always be relied on to do a fabulous job. So she really is going to be missed. And in some of my remarks, I said that that um, that I know she's up there watching every television show and documentary she ever wanted to watch with audio description, because of course, everything in heaven is going to be audio described. So we all know that. And and she's enjoying every moment of it now. So she's going to have all the accessibility she ever wanted and fought so hard for here in this world. And um, I wish her all the best. Dan Spoon, president oh. of the American Council of the Blind. Thank you, Kim. And it's really with a heavy heart that I, uh, you know, remember Denise tonight. She was just such a wonderful lady and such a wonderful person to work with. She was so pleasant and smart and just uh, a wonderful person and her dog wonder that we just lost recently as well they were quite a team and uh, you know not only did she love audio description she also was just a huge uh, international relations advocate and all the work she did there throughout her life she's just uh, a wonderful person and we're really 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 going to miss her so rest in peace, Denise. We love you. This is Sandra. I am just, I, I can't believe she's gone. I'm offering condolences on behalf of the International Relations Committee and on behalf of the D.C. Council of the Blind. Um, but Denise was a longtime member of both. And Barry, she was amazing, you know. Um, had no trouble speaking up, but was not you know, boisterous or anything like that. But anytime you asked her a question or if she had a particular passion, you know, you she, it, everything she said was heartfelt. Um, she had that kind but yet firm um, disposition. Um, she will truly be missed. Um, there's definitely a void. And, um, well... Our condolences from International Relations and the D.C. Council to her family. So rest in peace, Denise. And I know you're looking down and smiling on us. And um, until we meet again. Gail Morin is um, Denise's niece. And um, William is Gail's husband. So I'll let them say a few words. Um, Gail and I are sitting here. And to say we're humbled would be an understatement. Um, to us, she was Denny which was yeah. a nickname from her childhood. Um, we knew she was involved in many things, but... Not to this extent. By far, we are blown away between the American Council for the Blind, uh, the, uh, the audio description, um, AAUW God, partners, Seeing Eye, um, the DCCP Council with uh, Washington, D.C. It just... We're absolutely blown away. As 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 much as you think you know a relative you love, you can lose sight of their um, accomplishments. Uh, absolutely. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. And and Denise, though quiet, 
had a certain fierceness, which yes, I absolutely okay. adored. And I so appreciate um, hearing you go. And thank you for letting us be a part of this. Yeah. It really, this just blows us away. And, and we really want to thank you for making us part of this. I'm very, very pleased that you could be a part of it and that we could share, you know, our love and respect um, for Denise and and the real contribution that she has made and um, to the blindness community and, and to so many others, um, as you heard us say tonight, because she really, she really did make a difference. Wow. Um, let's just have a moment of silence for Denise Decker. Denise, gone but not forgotten. Hopefully you are looking down on us, smiling on us, um, and that you think that we are continuing your legacy in some small way. Thank you. Wow. Um, also, Denise is a, an angel memorial, um, International Relations, GDUI, uh, collaborated for that. Um, next, we have... Um, Josephine Defini, and I think that is being, she is being presented by Mel Schechter. Yes, Josephine Defini was born in the Bronx, New York, and one of my sources said it was 1937. Um, I spoke to two people that knew her very well. Um, one was uh, Myra Brodsky, who Sandra referred me to, and another one, Josephine, uh, was the person's boss. Her name was Lily. Um, now, according to one of the sources I spoke to, she came from a um, working-class family, and she went to public school and also Lavelle, which is a school for the blind in New York. She attended Adelphi University and she obtained her bachelor's in psychology. After that, she went to New York University and received both her, um, uh, yeah, received her master's and her PhD um, in, in social work. And she also received a certificate in gerontology from uh, Brookdale, um, gerontology, Brookdale, it's an agency on aging. Now, from 1968 to 1988, she was a social worker, but then from 1985 to 88, she was a supervising social worker, and she was the first supervising social worker in the newly established um, psychiatric unit at Beth Israel Hospital. She supervised the counseling component of drug um, maintenance and treatment programs. In addition, she provided services to clients and their family members and also conducted assessments developed treatment plans for and facilitated um, discharge treatment plans in an inpatient psychiatric unit. From October of 1988 to December of 2008, she was a supervisor at the Lighthouse Guild 
International for Social Work. And she directed and supervised the mental health department and social services. Josephine provided services to clients um, in the greater New York area, people of all ages and economic backgrounds. And her clients included individuals with vision impairments and multiple disabilities. Um, she also included their family members and significant others. She also supervised undergraduate and graduate social work students from a variety of social work programs. From 2008 until her death, she was in private practice and she died at the age of 79, uh, tragically, which was in 2016 on April 30th. Now, what I have to say is truly heartfelt because I knew her as a staunch advocate in New York. I'm originally from New York, I live in Maryland now, but I joined the Greater New York City chapter of ACB and she was served as the chapter president and also she served as the state president as well. Now, she told me you can do anything you wanna do and she was the first one in ACB that taught me to be an advocate. That was my introduction to advocacy and that is a lifelong thing for me. And she had a heart and she was a champion for blind people and people of all disabilities. And she just had such a warm heart and she was so selfless, just like Denise. I mean, she was unbelievable in the fact that she was very modest and didn't really uh, flaunt her attributes or her accomplishments. And she will be truly missed. When I think about her, I'm in tears because she has impacted my life. And I want to thank you for letting me give this tribute for her. Thank you. Thank you, Meryl. Definitely. Um, I will share um, a story that I have remembered from Josephine. Mm -hmm. uh, she, um, with her and Denise, um, were the only two people with guide dogs. Um, when we went to Madrid, when international relations went to mm. Madrid, and now they're no longer with us. Yeah. Um, but what I remember most about Josephine is that um, she was always an enthusiastic member of the committee, always wanting to help to pitch in to do what she could. And this one day, I was purchasing things to go in the goodie bags. And so I got these coins, these... Um, Louis Braille coins. And I bought like 20 of them. And the person who was manning the booth was just like, oh my goodness, I mean, we're glad to sell them to you, but can I ask why you're trying to buy so many? And so I explained, well, they're going to be goodie bags for um, voices from around the world. And Josephine was at the next table, the next booth, and she heard me talking and she came over and she's like, um, well, I know, you know, we don't have a big budget. So are you, are you paying for these out of your pocket? I said, yes. She said, okay, I will pay for half. 
She said, and from here on out, um, anything that you need for the committee, put me down for half. Just send me the receipt and I will pay for half. Anytime you need to, you know, stuff the goodie bags or anything like that, if I'm at convention, I I will help out. And she was true to her word. Um, she did that from that day on until the, the, the summer before she passed. Um, anytime she came to convention, she was there, was helping out. And so um, I, just like Denise, Josephine, I truly know that you are looking down on us, smiling down on us, um, and hopefully we are uh, embracing your legacy and continuing to to add to your legacy. Um, that you you're such a passionate person, such a passionate advocate, um, and so hopefully we are continuing that legacy, and and um, we are proud of what we're doing. Um, the next person is Denise Peterson Kent, and I am responsible for presenting her. Um, Denise was very passionate as well. She she was a teacher at TVI, um, and she that was her calling. Okay, Janice, I think I think Janice probably taught as a baby, right? She even when she first learned how to talk, she probably was trying to teach somebody something, right? Um, a huge proponent of Braille, um, always wanting braille this and braille that and can we make can we put braille on this and let's put braille on that um you know it just she was my mentor and my friend um staunch advocate but she was like a velvet lion because she was um very graceful and cultured and she wasn't you know um but she she meant what she said, and she always had no difficulty affirming that in a in a quiet yet resilient way. You knew Janice was on board for the long haul for any particular advocacy project. You know, very creative, very talented. She came up with the when we protested for Metro Wamada, granted is for gravestones, right? That was her phrase. Um, she was very active in Friends and Art, very active in the D.C. Council of the Blind, um, had an amazing singing voice, um, was a fabulous musician, excellent braille reader. And I was so very happy to have been asked to be a, a bridesmaid in her wedding. Um, I, I miss her all the time, every day, uh, wish she was still here. Um, and I am just very happy that she was able to make such a huge contribution to the American Council of the Blind, to Friends in Art, and to the International Relations Committee specifically. Um, I'm, I'm, it is, I feel blessed to count her as, as a friend. Um, and I, I will say now what I said at her, her funeral. Um, so I know that in heaven, heaven is perfection. So there is no blindness, deafness, 
or anything like that. But I still know that the first thing Janice did when she got to heaven was she asked God, God, do you know grade three Braille? And if he if he didn't, there was no better teacher than her. Denise, I know you can hear me. I know you can see me. And I hope that I have done you proud. Um, what we'll do now is to talk about some people who are still with us. Um, one of our founding members was Mr. Roger Peterson. And I have known Roger for a good long while and um, very good friend. And I'm, I'm very glad that he was am among the founding members of our committee. So Roger, if you could please unmute yourself and just speak a little bit about the early days of the committee and what it was like for you. I wanna thank you, Sandra, for your, uh, Janice. I had a, a somewhat uh, tempestuous but fairly lengthy relationship with her. I always cared a lot about her. Even, you know, um, one of the things I was just talking with a friend recently, uh, there's a special feeling that we both had, that we, we had in common that we had, that we lost an ex-wife. And you would think that Maybe you wouldn't care about that, but it turns out that even if you've been apart for some time, when when your ex-spouse uh, leaves the world, you it, it, you feel it. And uh, I discussed this with with a couple of other guys I know who had departed ex-wives. It's a phenomenon. <laughs> but anyway, Janice and I were together. We're involved in international things when in 1974 i believe it was we went to europe and we attended the uh, international federation of the blind which was one of the organizations that went that went together to form the world blind union it was in berlin and uh, it was a very uh, interesting uh, Meeting and it, it, one of the features of it, or one of the what, what do I want to say, uh, um, uh, something that sort of happened by accident as part of it was that we met the uh, we met a guy named Dr. Helmut Pilosh, who was the head of the um, blind organization in East Germany, and he invited us to East Berlin, and we went there. We went through Checkpoint Charlie. I want you to know. And uh, I think I counted eight times, eight separate times they asked for my passport. Um, but um, and my son, my son, who was 12 years old then, went with us, and we we had a very interesting time talking with Dr. Pilosh about uh, the differences. Uh, I I keep wondering now whether they still have the wonderful Braille press that they had. Uh, at the time of the East German government, they had a, a place in Leipzig called the Zentralbucherei, the Central Bookery, and they made wonderful real maps and uh, so forth. So um, anyway, I I, uh, 
I would certainly agree with all the nice things that um, that Sandra said about Janice. Um, I, my involvement in the international thing, I, I suppose you'd say that my involvement in the International Relations Committee uh, kind of coincided with my with my time of life when I was with Janice. Maybe it was a, it was kind of something we shared. Uh, but I also, since then, I've had a chance to go to Japan, which was quite uh, quite an interesting trip. I was the, I was the U.S. delegation at this conference in Japan. I sat by myself at a table with a U.S. flag on it. I was the, the American delegation. Uh, now that was a that was a um, thing that the, the Canon company used to put on. It was called originally called the Opticon Seminar, then later it was called the International Technical Aid Seminar. And uh, uh, one of the things that I thought was really fascinating about that, you know, of course, I, I worked at Telesensory, so I knew these Canon people to some degree, and uh, and I knew that in Japan the Opticon was very popular. Uh, one of the things I found out there was when when they when all the people from Japan introduced themselves, they told us their names, and they told us uh, which characters they used in their names in kanji. Kanji is the form of Japanese writing that uses characters like Chinese characters, and they were so proud that they could use kanji characters because they because they used the opticon, and they could actually feel the shape of those characters. But uh, anyway, uh, I I uh, I have a lot to to remember from from the, my international committee days, uh, and I I remember I remember you, Sandra. <laughs> I'm not um, sure if that's good or bad, but okay. <laughs> One of the things I remember about you, Sandra, is that you're about approximately as tall as I am, which is pretty tall. Um, I mean, six feet or something. Uh, but anyway, um, um, I I wanted to um, to be here, and um, and I am happy to um, see that the international programs are still going on. You know, when I started with the international stuff, there really wasn't a committee. There was just, there was Oral Miller, who knew a lot of people internationally because of his athletic endeavors. And, uh, and by the way, he he told me about being a roommate with the head of the Japan, Japan Federation of the Blind, and whom I met when I was in Japan. And he said that he, that he, um, they didn't speak any common language when they roomed together, but that, um, he he showed Oral his his techniques in uh, judo and put Oral on his butt on the floor. Uh, so uh, anyway, that's that's way too. I'm feeling very scattered, but uh, I'm here, and I I did come in late because I had I was I told uh, Sue Bowmaster that I had to shop on this. this Tuesday's the day my volunteer comes. It's shop then or shop never. And so um, 
I got home late, but I'm oh, not to worry. We appreciate anything that you you've done. We appreciate your continued service. Um, when you were on the committee, we appreciated, and ACB appreciates your continued service and devotion to the organization. So, um, thank you for that. Um, next is Alan. I believe he's doing oral. I haven't, you know, most, many of you have known Earl a lot longer than I have, but uh, certainly Roger has. Roger can tell you a lot more stories about Earl than, than I could. I've heard the one about the uh, the Japanese gentleman in Earl. But, um, I mean, Earl and I sort of hit it off, I think. Uh, we have a lot of things in common, uh, strong background in education, which Roger Roger has as well. But some of the things that really impressed me about Earl is I, is I got to know him. We had him here in North Carolina one year as our young our national guest for the uh, state convention. And, and just in talking with him, uh, found out, for example, that uh, he went to Princeton. He lost his eyesight when he was a teenager, or just I guess just before his teens. And um, he went to Princeton and decided to go out for the rowing team and made it. And uh, that's, that's, you know, you, you start thinking about that, a, a blind person on a rowing team, but he did well, and uh, he enjoyed it. And uh, knowing Oral as I do, uh, if, he, if he tried something, he was going to master it. And then went to, uh, I think, the University of Chicago Law School, which um, is no no uh, mean task to go to a law school like that. That was one of the more prestigious law schools in the country. But um, uh, Oral, um, uh, he just his, his nature is um, it's just something that's so different. Um, just his he's uh, he's quiet, but yet he's also so, so knowledgeable and uh, very firm in his beliefs, and uh, not really. Uh, not ashamed to step forward and uh, and let you know what he thinks about things. But uh, he's uh, he's been nice. He's been good to me. He's been sort of a, a distant mentor to me. We we don't live in the same area, but um, I've enjoyed working with him on the committee. I've learned a lot from him, and uh, seeing him at um, at our, our legislative seminars and uh, at the uh, the national convention. And of course, I think one thing that he's taught me that. Uh, is that uh, you, if you're from Washington, D.C., you're from the land of rep- uh, taxation without representation. Without representation. I think that's something that uh, Orwell should have a plaque on his wall saying that he may well have it. I don't know. But uh, it's just the, the way Orwell um, sticks with an issue and uh, helps people, stands by people, and is always there willing to answer your questions and uh, do what he can for you. We need more people like him. Thank you, Alan. Thank you very much. Um, we affectionately call him the Big O. Um, and really, to me, he's an elder statesman. You know, um, I remember on the like, I would have some international guests. And back when he was the national representative, I could pick up my phone and say, Oral, there's some um, folks from. Denmark or Germany or, you know, Tanzania in town. Can you? Oh, sure, sure. And um, he was very gracious and very, you know, um, and and he'd say, now, Sandra, um, next time you, you really need to be more punctual, but but I, you did the right thing. So, um, you know, I, I couldn't help that they just decided to show up in my doorstep. <laughs> um, but he has been a huge asset 
um, to ACB, to um, the world blind community, and um, to this committee. And so we're very happy that he is continuing to serve with us. Um, last but not least is Lauren. Lauren Casey was a devoted member to the organ to this committee. Um, she comes from New Jersey, um, a staunch advocate, uh, always very much like Josephine in the sense that she she had she was hugely devoted to the International Relations Committee, and I can remember um, initially when we started. Uh, having the receptions and the luncheons, we would have goodie bags, particularly for our international guests. Um, and she was one of the people who literally, she would send things to the hotel that I could stuff the goodie bags with. Um, I've never actually met her in person. It's unfortunate. I never met her, but still, um, it was as if I've known her forever and um, just very diligent, dedicated to the cause. Um, I, I believe that she was a social worker as well by profession, um, but wonderful person, excellent committee member, um, and there's still um, a void uh, since, her, since her death. Um, we, we miss her, love her dearly, miss her, and, and hope that she is happy um, not only with the legacy that she left, but that we are preserving it and continuing on. So that concludes our presentation of our previous our members um, who have been uh, past members of our illustrious committee. Um, at this point, I would like to open it up for any questions that anyone might have. Please raise your hands. All right. And do you see anyone, uh, Katie? No, ma'am. Okay. Um, I will do one final thing. Um, so far, I have guests from Canada and from Dubai. Is there anyone else from another country? If so, raise your hand so Kitty can unmute you and you can tell us where you're from. No? Okay. Um, I will say this. Um, this is my last year serving as your chair, well, chair of international relations, and it will be my last time presiding over um, Voices from Around the World. It has been my distinct pleasure uh, to serve on this committee as the chair um, I, I feel like I've grown a lot. The committee's grown a lot. Um, we have done some amazing things. We went to Madrid, um, started some projects where we have um, Tanzania, Ghana, um, and, and many other places where we've been a help by sending blindness products, um, letting them know who we are as ACP as ACB, as the International Relations Committee, the committee has evolved. We have definitely stepped into the, the front lines of being able to communicate on a virtual platform like Zoom, where we have brought people who ordinarily would not have an opportunity to come 
to a convention, um, they've been able to speak with us. So it is my sincere hope that in the future, um, this committee does even better things. I would just like to say again that I've had a wonderful committee. My committee has been devoted um, to ACB and to international relations. They are dedicated and tireless. And I believe that next year um, it will be even better, even though I won't be presiding. I still will be supportive of the committee by far, absolutely. Um, you can't, you're not getting rid of me so easily. And so I will give you um, two more things. One, I encourage you to come back and visit with us on Thursday. Um, we are collaborating with GDUI to present Global Tales. Um, so please do join us for that. Uh, the closing CEU code is 60037. Again, 60037. So I thank you all for joining us. Thank you for your continual support. Um, again, thank you.